Hi, I'm Sarah Loudon from Total Health Conferencing, and this is another podcast episode of Inspired. Tonight, we are with Dr. Hope Rugo, professor in the Department of Medicine and the Director of Breast Cancer at the University of California, San Francisco. And as always, our Inspired interviews really are to get a more intimate look at who we are working together with uh, and get to know them a little bit more. So hope it's a first name interview because we kind of like to beam into the cars or the living rooms of where everyone is. And I would like to dive right in in starting by uh, asking you to tell us a little bit about where you grew up and maybe a little bit about your family in terms of brothers and sisters, what your mom and dad did, etc. Well, it's great, Sarah, and thanks so much for inviting me to be interviewed and for doing actually this whole program series, which I think is so nice and gives such a personal touch to what we do and to oncology. Um, I grew up in Massachusetts, largely uh, born in uh, Virginia when my father was in the middle military, uh, but really from my all of my uh, memory part of life is from growing up in Massachusetts. Um, and uh, then I went on to a college at Tufts University uh, before I went on to medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'll talk more about what happened after that in a moment. But um, I, I was the middle child of three children. I have an older brother who's a lawyer and lives in uh, in St. Louis and a younger brother who strangely enough also lives in St. Louis because they went to college in the same place uh, and uh, who works on a, a, a therapy sort of area. Uh, and uh, they, so they see each other quite frequently, um, but I'm the one who's far away in the West Coast. My, um, my father had a PhD in uh, biophysics and worked in that field, but I think that his life was really shaped as was true of my husband's parent father by uh, working in World War II and being in the Korean War and uh, really changed their complete perspective. And I think they brought a lot of that to our growing up in our family life in terms of um, our, our passions and what we put energy into doing. Um, and uh, then my mother, interestingly, uh, went, to went to Radcliffe at the time and got a degree in his, you know, art history or something, I don't know. And she worked in museums, but she didn't do uh, much of, uh, she didn't work for very long and uh, had three kids. And then uh, when we were in, when I was in high school, she went back to school and learned how to teach dyslexic children English. Wow. She had always been so fascinated with English. She read the dictionary for fun as a kid, you know, and so she became dean. You know, it's just a, an older profession. She became dean of the school that she worked in, in uh, near where we grew up in Massachusetts, and uh, president of the New England branch of the Orton Society. And uh, that was really a great uh, profession for her. Uh, with, um, I think, a lot of positive feedback, and she did really well in it. It was exciting for her. How old were you guys when she decided to kind of go back to school and almost start this second life uh, with the things she was interested in? I think that I was in high school, so my brother's three years older than me, must have been towards the end of high school, and my younger brother in, you know, higher grade school, but it wasn't very far away from us. And we grew up in a little town in Massachusetts. So it wasn't like people were going far, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah. But that's still so, um, it's kind of like for this, to follow your dreams at really any time uh, in your life. And it almost seems as though she did all of the things she was gonna do and then decided, 
I have this real interest and this real passion in this thing and I'm going to go for it. Uh, yeah, it was so really funny cool. because she had last been in school so long ago. My mother was born in 1923, right? And she got a master's in fine arts, so she had a higher degree. But when she went to go go to school, you know, uh, she didn't have anything to show, right, for decades and decades. So she brought her Phi Beta Kappa key, which was very wow. popular. <laughs> with her. I just remember that being such an important thing for her in getting into this program, which is very competitive. And, um, and you know, she was always a good student. So it was yeah. a great thing to see her develop that, um, that area of her life. And I think very encouraging because uh, my parents were, <laughs> although they, they did, you know, I was, I was born a long time ago. It was a different world. You know, we had... Uh, girls had to wear dresses to school. And I remember that when it was really snowy in Massachusetts, we would wear pants under our dresses and then we had to take them off before we wow. could go to class. So you say, wow, that was a long time ago. No, but it just seems, it's so funny because as we go along in this interview, I'm gonna ask you, I, I, one of my questions was, you know, how have things evolved for women in medicine since you uh, went to medical school? But let's start with medical school. So. When did you know that you wanted to be a doctor? Well, that's the funny thing is that um, I, from very young, I had this idea that I wanted to be a doctor, which I think to my parents seemed like one of those, you know, kid dreams, you know. I, um, I think when I was five, I said, uh, you know, I want to have a job, you know. <laughs> and, then, and then the next thing was, my father was a biophysicist, so I wanted to have a chemistry set. So I saved up my green stamps from the gas stations, which we had then, which no one on the call will have know anything about, but SNH green stamps in our little book. And from Sears, I got a chemistry set uh -huh. where you could set various things on fire, you know. And, uh, and then somehow around, you know, it was a little older, maybe under 10 though still, I had the idea that if you were in doing chemistry, you were actually sitting in a lab, never seeing anybody. And, um, I, uh, and watching the doctors on television, I thought, wow, this is really cool. I want to be a doctor when I grow up. And my, my, I remember my mother saying, you know, well, you know, if you have a profession like that, you'll never have a family, right? Then you won't get married and have a family. <laughs> but, you know, I never believed anything like that. So, wow. uh, so, so as, I was very young when I wanted to be a doctor. And as you grew up, did it change? You know, we all kind of feel like we want to be something when we're young. And then as we experience other things, or was it pretty consistent all along? You knew you wanted to do this. Well, luckily, I didn't want to be an astronaut or something uh -huh. that, you know, you have all sorts of criteria that knock you out, you know. Uh, being a physician really just has to do with working really, really hard, you know, to get there. But, you know, I never, it's an interesting thing. That's not anything I ever doubted. I knew I wanted to be a physician. And um, I started volunteering in our local hospital in Massachusetts, a little little local regional hospital. And you know, did worked in the school for people who had genetic diseases like Tay-Sachs in the summers. And, you know, every chance I had, I worked at something like that. And I always thought it was really interesting. One of the things I always have thought about physicians is that, you know, clinician physicians are a little nosy, right? I mean, they see something and they want to know what's wrong, what caused that. And that was one of the real excitements I had when I started volunteering was, you know, what is wrong? What's causing that? What's the mechanism of making that? And I didn't even know, you know, there wasn't something like translational, you know, biology or then or anything, but it was really just a sense of wanting to know what was wrong and also having a real passion for communicating with people. And I mean, it sounds so trite, but helping people, you know, I always had this idea of 
fixing problems. So uh, I didn't ever really change my mind. That's, that's amazing. And as you are going through medical school, was it, you know, I, I've said this in a couple of podcasts that I think it's last year we had the first class where the majority of incoming medical school students were women. Do you see there has been these kind of major or maybe even incremental shifts in a balance of uh, women in medicine kind of emerging as everything from professors to deans to researchers uh, over the years? Yeah, I mean, I think there has been a huge shift and you ask about professors and deans, et cetera. I think the shift in the higher levels has been much more subtle. Mm -hmm. um, the number of women in the medical school classes is very different. We could count on one hand the women in my medical school class, but I have to say uh, maybe two hands. Uh, we already were much more than what had been in the past, yeah. and people were very accepting of women being in medicine, but there was a sense, I remember one of the uh, my classmates got engaged, and then she said, well, she was going to change to go into uh, dermatology, no strike against dermatology, because she needed to have time to take care of her husband and her family, you know. So now I can't imagine somebody actually saying that to me at UCSF Medical School. But, you know, I think there was still the sense that, you know, you still had all those standard female responsibilities and you were going to do medicine alongside. And there was a sense of what might be the best careers for women uh, versus not. But I think that when I was in medical school, already those barriers were being broken and people were really looking beyond the traditional roles and doing more and more. But it's interesting to me, I mean, I when I started on faculty at UCSF 30 years ago, um, there were, you know, women, there was one other woman in the program who subsequently left. Now women are big in the program and hold big roles, you know, of responsibility. For example, uh, the, you know, woman ran our fellowship program, a woman runs our quality assist assurance, uh, one of our faculty members, and these are women in their early 40s. I mean, they're not the, you know, old people. And they, yeah. um, she uh, ran all of our COVID response from a medical oncology standpoint. And, you know, so we're really um, seeing and, and also the women in all, across all divisions have done amazing work in research and uh, clinical programs. So I think, you know, during my time at UCSF, it's been an enormous shift. Yeah, yeah. It's really encouraging uh, to see. But getting back to uh, medical school and kind of picking your specialty, you didn't start off in breast oncology. So maybe walk us through what your original interest was, and then how you shifted to get into uh, breast oncology care. Well, it's a little circuitous, um, and uh, but I think my interests were always aligned. It was where I was putting my interests that changed a little bit over time and understanding what was the best. Some people figure it out earlier on, and it took me a little longer. So, uh, but um, I, in medical school, you know, my whole idea was I was going to save the world, you know. Uh, the idea of being an epidemiology intelligence officer was very interesting to me through the CDC, where you would go out and deal with, you know, pandemics and infectious disease. I mean, it's so funny to think about where we are now, but that's what my whole idea was of what I wanted to do. And a lot of the volunteering that I did was in part related to going to rural areas and trying to figure out what was going on. I volunteered for the Tennessee Brown Lung Association one summer and took a bus down to rural Tennessee and worked there. And, you know, a lot of different interesting areas. But 
I actually had gone to medical school on a National Health Service Corps award because it was $6,000 a year was more than what we had. And that was tuition at University of Pennsylvania when I started. Mm -hmm. So I got two years of support from the National Health Service Corps, which was hugely helpful. But with that two years, you commit to, uh, to working in a health manpower shortage area uh, for that number of years after you finish your training. And you could only train in specific areas. So for example, you couldn't have done training in surgery uh, because that wasn't an identified need. You could do internal medicine. There wasn't any family practice then. So uh, the, I you know, did my residency and training, but in between, I actually went to Asia with the Asia Foundation and the Henry Luce Foundation. So you know, again, I had always wanted to go out and you know, fix things and, you know, I, and, I, and I still love to travel, not that we're doing it now. But uh, I had applied for a number of programs through the University of Pennsylvania because they're a big undergraduate campus. And I had got two fellowships, one was from the Henry Luce Foundation, and one was to study public health in uh, England at the London School of uh, Tropical Hygiene. But in the end, I took the um, Asia program because it was so different. And uh, so they actually sent at the time 15 Americans to various places in Asia to work in their field for a year. So I went to the southernmost island of the Philippines, Mindanao, and I taught community health workers and uh, worked within the small medical school there, traveled around. Um, and so then uh, when I came back, the question was, you know, what was I gonna do? And uh, because of the National Health Service Corps, I did uh, internal medicine uh, and didn't have to really think about what I was gonna do. At the time, I was still very focused in infectious disease. So then I went, uh, you know, I matched at UCSF and in part, the reason why I put UCSF top on my match list was because I had just spent this year in Asia my medical school class had graduated, so I spent another year with a class behind me, and I went to England and actually did work. I didn't get a master's in public health, but I worked uh, in a couple of hospitals in uh, London uh, that next year. So I, I came to California because it was, seemed closer to Asia and more with what I was working in at the time. But in my residency, what I found was really interesting was, um, you know, that infectious disease was absolutely fascinating, but you didn't um, follow the person, right? You take care of the problem and then yeah. they go away. But in oncology, you know, we spent a lot of time, you know, working on the oncology ward. Uh, you actually took care of the whole person. And the problem was more like a puzzle to solve, you know, the, the infectious complications, all the issues that were going on at the time uh, with uh, patients who were hospitalized, with transplants, et cetera. And I felt like in the end that that was a whole body, you know, like you could really take care of a patient. So I started thinking about oncology, but I still had this National Health Service Corps Award, right? So at the time, the administration had changed and the National Health Service Corps had a lot less resources, but I still had my requirement. So I remember the place that they were going to place me possibly was either Sitka, Alaska, where I was going to be doing pediatric, I, mean, I trained in a tertiary care hospital in internal medicine. I was going to be doing pediatrics and OBGYN and things like that, or I could go to Lubbock, Texas and work in a jail. So all of these were possibilities. And uh, that I was on call at our county hospital as a second year resident. And I got a call from the program director at the time in Hemonk saying, this was the first year of the match we have a spot left. Do you want to be a Hemonk fellow? And it was 10 o'clock in the morning and I had 10 admissions. 
<laughs> I said, well, how long do you need, you know, for me to decide? He said, well, the next hour. <laughs> I said, okay, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> well, facing, facing Alaska or a jail in Lubbock, Texas, it might have felt a little bit like this is a good, this might be a good well, third. You know, I was really interested in Hemonk and uh, I think, you know, the issue was that I couldn't figure out the funding part for the National Health Service Corps. Right but they gave me National Research Science Award funding for the two years. So that deferred my requirement. And then I paid back my service working at the university. Yeah. So I remember when I got that, that um, notice in, in uh, paper, because it wasn't email then, that said I had paid back my uh, debt, I kept it on the refrigerator for a year. Because <laughs> wow. it's amazing. so much drove all of that. But it was really exciting. And so then when I finished my residency, I went right into the Hemonk Fellowship. And you were mentioning how I got to breast cancer. And you know, I said it's a little circuitous because I went into the lab during my fellowship, which everybody did at that time. And I worked on, interestingly, cytokines and the immune system and was really interested in you know, again, it was sort of going back to infectious disease, but looking at, um, and in fact, I worked with a guy in an ID at Stanford and um, looking at cytokine response and the host immune response and um, trying to understand how uh, the body responded to disease. And again, um, when I, I had a grant, so I was going to stay in the lab and I was finishing my fellowship and they had a spot that opened up on the faculty in bone marrow transplant. And they called me up and they said, <laughs> do you want to take this position? I said, well, sure, <laughs> why not? So I did bone marrow transplants for nine years. But um, during that time, it was really exciting. I um, started our stem cell harvesting program, our unrelated donor program. We worked, we did transplants, the first transplants in myeloma. We were all involved in those different areas and autologous transplants for leukemia. Um, it was actually a fascinating time. I learned a lot about HLA and the immune system. And then, uh, unfortunately, my mother, who had had a one centimeter breast cancer, right before I left for Asia in 1982, 83, um, had uh, developed metastatic disease to bone. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I ended up taking care of her when I had my uh, small children, my son and then my daughter. And, um, and she eventually died of her breast cancer that was hormone receptor positive and should never have come back. And so, you know... <laughs> I loved hematology, it was really great. But you know, I started thinking a lot about what I wanted to do and where I wanted to spend my energy and time in my career. And you know, I looked at myeloma, which I was working on at the time, which was 4% of all cancers, incredibly important. And I looked at breast cancer, you know, one in eight women got breast cancer then too. And again, I was so fortunate that one of my colleagues went into industry so I applied for that job in breast oncology and made a lateral move and I've never looked back. That was 21 years ago and it was the best career move I made. It's not just the best career move you made probably personally, but I can't imagine an environment of breast cancer absent of Hope Rugo's uh, <laughs> contributions. I mean, I really can't, I'm sure our listeners feel the same way. Um, it seems like you were following, you always, you know, from five years old, when you were like thinking about that chemistry set and collecting the stamps and all those things, you were always searching for, um, it was like you were always letting curiosity lead you. And I love that even it, later on, it's always been like that curiosity that's kind of brought you to making these decisions. And I think that that's probably what makes you such a, uh, 
a great researcher because you're still always looking for those answers. Like, why is it happening? You know, what can we do to influence the fact that it's happening? So, you know, this year at the ASCO, uh, our cancer meeting for those who are listening who aren't um, providers, there's a national meeting every year that, you know, tens of thousands of doctors uh, learn the newest in data uh, development and, and Hope had some very exciting uh, things. And uh, Hope, I'd love for you to share maybe some of the exciting things you've been involved with uh, since you made the move to breast cancer and then specifically this year at ASCO. Yeah, I mean, there've been so many things that I've been involved with over time that have been really exciting and fun. And I think, um, you know, one of the amazing things that we do uh, is interact with our colleagues internationally and interact with our patients who are just an incredible group of people and make up the whole fabric of what we do. So the reason for everything that we do really goes yeah. back to our patients. But uh, for me, a lot of the exciting areas were developing our own research studies, being involved from the ground level in our uh, national uh, neoadjuvant trial called iSpy2. Um, and then some other really interesting things. So things that just came up off the cuff, you know, getting the first scalp cooling device approved in yes. the United States uh, for preventing hair loss from chemotherapy, all based on a patient, you know, really pushing me to try and prevent her hair loss um, in uh, a long time ago now. And, um, you know, that it was interesting that you could sort of just take an idea you know, cast around for a partner to work on it and come up with something that would really lead to a change. I know now there are two scalp cooling devices approved in the United States. Scalp cooling is available to people all across the United States in many centers, although we're still working on trying to get insurance to cover it more. And we're always working on improving this. The, one of the other areas that I worked on was kind of funny given the fact that I was always going to go out and do international, you know, infectious disease work was biosimilars. You know, yeah. I've been very interested in access to care and uh, having the opportunity to work on uh, the um, regulatory approval of the first trastuzumab biosimilar in the United States was also really exciting for me. And then lastly, you know, I've always been interested in, you know, how people manage and side effects and managing side effects and sort of weighing risk and benefit. And through that, I got really interested in toxicity management and safety. And through that, you know, we developed a very simple steroid mouthwash to prevent Everolimus stomatitis that's being used, you know, got put onto the label based on our work in the SWISH trial. And uh, people use it worldwide. And it essentially eliminated any severe stomatitis based on a really simple solution. We've been able to outline the timelines for certain toxicities, which has helped people think about ways to manage these toxicities. And we've developed some new ways to try and communicate management of toxicity in a more uh, rapid fashion and to, uh, in fact, sort of track these um, through the iSpy program where I'm the uh, safety officer along with a colleague uh, from UC San Diego, Richard Swab. So I, um, I think that those are some of the really exciting areas that I've been able to work in, in terms of the clinical trials, but, um, you know, before ASCO this year, but more recently over the last few years, the whole advent of immunotherapy felt like I was in some ways coming back home because I had started in the lab and, you know, and in bone marrow transplant thinking about the host immune system and the immune response and how it benefited, uh, how it could uh, work together uh, to eliminate illness, including cancer. 
So the whole idea of checkpoint inhibitors and understanding tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, uh, all of the work that we've done in that area and in Passion 130, where it was just an honor to participate in that trial and to be able to look at some of the biomarker data. And now most recently, Keynote 355 with pembrolizumab, where we're still looking at additional data and we'll see additional data in the future. You know, uh, I've been interested in what affects the majority of patients, you know, looking at cyclin-dependent uh, kinase 4-6 inhibitors has been just again, another honor to be able to participate. You know, our patients who are, I have three patients who are seven years out from wow. starting on Paloma two, the first phase three trial to start in the first line setting. I mean, who would have thought that such a thing could happen? Working in HER2 positive disease where, you know, we have patients who have survived, you know, metastatic HER2 positive breast cancer and they weren't when I started in breast oncology. So, you know, just seeing the advances in treating brain mets, et cetera, very exciting to see. For me, you know, uh, going, continuing uh, to look at different ways of trying to improve outcome and understand different patient uh, responses based on prior treatment has been really interesting. At ASCO this year, I presented data from the first cohort of the BILEAVE trial that looked at the PI3 kinase inhibitor alpelisib in patients who had developed progression of their cancer on CDK4-6 inhibitors and an aromatase inhibitor and were treated with fulvestrant and alpelisib and had known PIK3CA mutations. That includes about 40% of breast cancer. And that's been also really interesting because it's a single arm trial, which I like when we have an approved drug, you know, where we don't have to randomize patients. It seems like to me such a big ask of patients and such a big use of money and resources to randomize again, if we know a drug already has effectiveness, although there are tremendous benefits of randomization in many settings. But in this trial with Bileave, we used a really novel approach, which I think people have been looking at more and more, which is looking at a real world analysis. Yeah. So we actually got a group of patients from this Flatiron database who all had PIK3CA mutations and all had prior exposure to CDK4-6 inhibitors and compared this, how long the disease was controlled or progression-free survival in the real world group versus the experimental group and showed that there was a continued effectiveness of alpelisib with fulvestrant in patients who'd received prior CDK4-6 inhibitors. The original trial that led to approval, only a tiny number of patients had received those agents, the CDK4-6 inhibitors, because uh, the trial occurred before there was approval of those agents. So this really added to, I think, people's understanding and comfort. And we also saw that we could uh, modify toxicity by understanding the timelines for toxicity, some data we just published this year. And also uh, that by using um, oral non-sedating antihistamines, we could markedly reduce rash, which was a big issue. So there, you know, we learned a lot from these analyses that I think will help to uh, moderate toxicity and help patients to tolerate this treatment. And do you see study designs like this becoming kind of marks of the future now that we we're, we're learning so much in a, at a rate that really is unprecedented in all cancers, most cancers. Um, do you think that we have to get more creative in how we design trials? And do you think COVID has pushed us into thinking about things like redundancies and efficiencies and access and things like that that will lead to better trial design and, and greater access for adults on clinical trials? 
You know, it's a good question. I think that some things are going to stay. And for some things, I think our memory may be short. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think where, where I, I hope things will stay is the ability to do telemedicine visits when patients don't need to come in for an exam, get their laboratory studies done locally. Our patients have really, really appreciated that with the of course, caveat that if people have satellite internet, the communication can be difficult, which happens for some of our more rural patients. Um, and you know, maybe that'll change over the future too, that there'll be a lot of energy and effort put into trying to improve internet access for patients just for this purpose to improve healthcare. Um, so you know, having meetings with, uh, you know, being able to learn more and having educational meetings where there is a component of uh, telemedicine or, you know, virtual meetings like this one, um, I think also is really exciting. Although I think all of my colleagues would agree that we're really pining for our in-person meetings. <laughs> really looking forward to that. And then in some ways having an in-person meeting allows us to have real-time communication and learn more and convey more. Uh, but I, I think that this will be part, a component of things. Maybe it'll make you know, education even more accessible for people around the world. And that will be really important because that's how we improve patient care. We can do uh, consults, for example, for patients in various places of the world using telemedicine. And that's another great thing that we, I hope, will incorporate more and more due to COVID. For yeah. research trials, it's a whole other issue. You know, we've really been facing, if you're taking oral medications, maybe you could not come in all the time, right? You don't need an exam. Your disease is in your bones. You can't feel it, you know? Um, and in fact, there's not a lot we see on exam unless people have nodes or chest wall disease or big livers. We need the labs, we need to talk to them. Uh, but I have to say that in general, the sponsors for trials are very hesitant to have any of that happen. And we've had some trials that closed during the height of the pandemic that are opening now where there were a lot of you know, guarantees that we have to make that we will see the patients in person. They will always come in person. They will always do the lab. So I think that uh, the sponsors are very worried about the regulatory wow. reaction to this. Um, that having been said, we have one trial with an all oral regimen that we're still delivering by courier and patients are coming in every other visit and doing telemedicine every other visit. I'd love to see that be incorporated more, but the only reason that we were allowed to do that is because um, these patients had already been on study for more than a year and we really understood the safety completely. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think we're going to wait and see. I'm guessing that in the clinical research arena, that we won't remember much of it. You know, it won't be part of our memory. But in clinical care, I hope that it is. Yeah. You know, it's sad because you think of cancer being, you know, everybody's always trying to innovate to kind of reach the patient where they are more and more and more, no matter what, if you're like all the work you're talking about referencing toxicities, like, you know, the, the goal isn't just cure cancer. The goal is to give a good quality of life while you're curing cancer. Uh, and I think it's sad because, you know, the, the numbers of um, adults that join clinical trials are, you know, somewhere less than 5%. Uh, and so little changes might be um, something that kind of spurs more people to have more remote access. And I'm sure that we are innovative enough to come up with ways to kind of still check all the regulatory boxes. But, you know, it's interesting to hear that, you know, we, we, we might have a short memory, but my hope is 
uh, that you know people like you and others can convince those rule makers that we can still do just as effective a job and maybe even better uh, by considering some of the patient challenges uh, in joining trials. One thing I think that is um, that is helpful is that you can do an initial discussion of a trial now by telemedicine. So it may feel less of a trek for the patient and a little less threatening that they have their, you know, their family can be there. You know, so it's, it's been an issue with COVID having people into clinic and uh, and they can really learn about it and maybe decide and come in. We mostly have people who are doing neoadjuvant therapy come in because you want to examine them, but. Um, in other situations, you know, we've done a lot of discussion of trials and possibilities for treatment by telemedicine for patients who are coming in for second opinions or consults. And maybe that'll help people a little bit in terms of uh, better ways. And, you know, monitoring for clinical trials, et cetera, being able to use some kind of virtual monitoring, although yeah. we're still working out how that's going to happen, you know, access to the electronic health record, how that works, and maintaining confidentiality there's still a lot of interest in on-site monitoring. So um, we'll see. I mean, maybe this will uh, lead gradually to bigger and bigger changes. You know, it's interesting. We've, um, you know, talked about, you know, what you can do, for example, if you could give subcutaneous trastuzumab and pertuzumab at home, you know. Yeah. Still people are very anxious about it, you know, in terms yeah. of reimbursement and cost and how people can do the injection, et cetera. You know, I think people, it will still be given in infusion centers and not at home unless, and you know, insurance aren't going to pay for a nurse to go to the home every three weeks. So there's still a lot of adjusting that we're doing about, you know, what you can do at home versus not in terms of active therapy. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned some cases where you have, you know, patients who have done very well. Uh, who are still part of, you know, trials that started a very long time ago, and then patients who you've seen um, come out of therapies that weren't available uh, and they're still living. Do you have cases, a case maybe that sticks out in your mind of someone that just makes what you do um, so rewarding, knowing that, you know, your intervention has uh, impacted them so significantly? You know, the hardest thing about that, Sarah, is that there are so many. Yeah, well, that's um, wonderful. That it is. It's really amazing when I think about the people where, you know, we, you know, it, I'm just so amazed at how well they're doing. I, you know, sometimes I'll have an afternoon where I see three or four of those people and it's just so inspiring. And in some ways it re-energizes you because we deal with a lot of tough situations too, but I think that it can really re-energize you. You know, the patient who had a brain metastasis who was NED without any disease, you know, 10 years later, and I just took off the experimental therapy she was on with bevacizumab and lapatinib. Um, a patient who went on a very early trial we did with Memorial who had metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And for reasons I have no idea why on bevacizumab and erlotinib, her disease went away um, and it never came back again. So she's now long been off therapy. It's about 15 years, 18 years ago now, 16 years ago. And she was the only patient in a trial of 41 patients. Wow. 
Wow. And then, you know, I have a number of other patients, the patients with triple negative disease who for some reason their disease went away, you know, doing something and it just didn't come back again. You know, now that we have immunotherapy, I have a couple of patients who, you know, are, have no disease who started on immunotherapy trials, including one patient who started on this uh, Keynote 86 cohort A, which was in the second or greater line, a young woman who started on single agent pembrolizumab. You know, we weren't checking any PDL1 or anything in that group, and we didn't have the data that responses were poorer, you know, to the second or greater line, single agent pembro. She had triple negative disease with lung meds. What we do know now is that lung meds have more TILs and higher PDL1 positivity than maybe liver. In any case, she started on therapy and uh, with her lung meds that had progressed on capecitabine and a young woman in her 40s. And then she um, went to Mexico about four months later. Lung lesions were markedly smaller, right? So I knew she was responding but you don't know how long or what's going to happen. We, you know, we had barely given immunotherapy at that time. And so she went to Mexico and she came back and she had a little diarrhea. And we're like, oh yeah, you know, it's just traveler's diarrhea. Everybody had it. So then diarrhea got better with antibiotics. Then it got a lot worse. I like, talked to my colleagues and, you know, lung and I think it was melanoma. And they said, oh, well, you better do a colonoscopy. So she had a little bit of colitis. And at the time you were supposed to stop therapy if you had colitis. But I talked to, there was a phase two trial, not randomized. I talked to my colleagues who were running the study and said, look, you know, this is so mild. I can just give her budesonide. Can I keep her on? And they said, well, it's up to you. Whatever's in her best interest, it won't be a violation. So I kept her on. And uh, two years later, we were supposed to stop treatment. I gradually tapered her off the budesonide. The side effects went away. Um, and I said at two years, you know, I don't want to really stop the Pembro. And they were like, well, but you have to. <laughs> so... I got to a compassionate use Pembro and put her on Pembro. And it's now, um, she's four and a half years, still NAD, and went on budesonide one other time, has, you know, a little psoriasis, uh, on and off, a little bit of diarrhea. But, you know, her kids have grown up. She had breast reconstruction. She said, oh, now I'm not going to die. I'm going to have reconstruction. You know, she's working full time as a teacher, now virtually. Yeah. And, you know, it is stories like that that just you know, make you realize that you can make such a difference yeah. in a single person's life. And yeah. that's really exciting. And I think it gives all of us the passion for what we do every day. It has to drive what we do on a, all the time. Yeah. I love the balance between you seeing patients in clinic on that one-on-one, -on -one, um, which is what kind of drove you into this, moving away from your original dreams of being, you know, the uh, epidemiology in investigator. <laughs> Marching around. <laughs> <being> <laughs> <a bug. laughs> yes. But you still are impacting, you know, with even things like the cold caps. You know, it's so incredible when you're given something that you think you're going to lose and you're, it's, it helps you kind of keep your, your faith and your hope and your spirit, all of those things. And so you're, you balance that success in the clinic and then success still on these population things that, you, that you're involved with. So I love that you've been able to kind of keep that balance too uh, as you've moved forward um, in, your, in your pursuits. Hope, can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, all of us went through this kind of whoosh in March when everything started shutting down and someone like you who has clinic, who has research, who travels to speak from podium, who is involved in, you know, so many things. Um, all of a sudden now it's like you're home, it's telemedical visits, 
it's, you know, let's figure out what's going on with this COVID. What have you learned about this season of your life that maybe things were moving very fast before, but this gave you an opportunity to uh, see things in a little bit of slow motion. What have you learned about this, about yourself in this time? Well, you know, it's interesting you say slow motion. I was just reflecting on, I don't think I've ever been as busy in my life. I mean, I think the issue of being able to do telemedicine visits anywhere and talk to people and give talks by, you know, do talks by Zoom or other platforms and do virtual advisory boards, um, all of the things that are going on have really, and the sort of, you know, cl small closing of clinical research, but keeping the critical studies open and then expanding again. You know, there's been a million conference calls and they, I just sometimes I can't find a minute, you know, except for in the middle of the night to close my notes, you know. So it's been really, really busy. But of course, we haven't traveled. And in the beginning, it was kind of a novel thing for no travel. And now, again, all of my colleagues, you know, around the world, it's like, you know, we miss traveling a little and maybe not yeah. so much, but you know, we really, I, I do really miss seeing my colleagues and, and, uh, and interacting with people around the world. That, that was really fun. And I, I think um, very gratifying and I learned so much. I think that I'm hopeful that we'll get back to some of that in the next year or so, uh, maybe in 2021, which is really what we're looking for. Cause I think those were, that's an exciting thing to do. And I, I can't tell you how much I learned from my colleagues. So yeah. if you're sitting in a, in a room listening to how people are interpreting data or talking about it outside of our major meetings, you know, um, it really does help a lot. And also understanding different cultural approaches to disease and treatment, et cetera, have also been something I've been able to bring back to our own practice, which I think has been uh, really, really good. But I've learned some also. I think it's... Uh, you know, it is a time for reflection. You know, there was a lot of fear early on and, you know, we were still marching into work, you know, and, uh, you know, I, there was not, I don't, there hasn't been a clinic that I missed. Mm -hmm. um, so we did more telemedicine, but we were still seeing our patients who needed chemotherapy. Yeah. And it was scary. I think facing one's own fear um, about, in some ways, more about bringing home illness to your older husband who has asthma, things like that, um, or maybe bringing illness to your patients unknowingly has been a very interesting experience that we never had before. Yeah. So I've, I've learned some about how to manage that. I also learned something which is really interesting and you would never think about this, is that you know, it was really quiet. It's sort of in the beginning in particular, it's a little bit more regular now, like the, our hub room is busier, although they made this COVID distancing. So it's a little messy, you know, where everybody can sit and everything. But um, the medical assistants, you know, a lot of times just me and the medical assistants, right? And the front office staff. And they were all taking a risk too. Yeah. And they have a very different experience of coming to where they are, not seeing the patients and having the patients be so grateful and being alive, et cetera. They don't have as much of that experience really. So I started going to, you know, buying something, you know, every week to bring in. So it had to be something that was individually packaged, you know, fig bars and I brought in little caramels and, you know, I bring in something and I hand it, you know, everybody take it out um, and each week, you know, I know my colleague who runs the uh, clinical program overall would have lunch served once a week. And what's in interesting to me is it brought together a collegiality with our staff that just didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. a conversation, a sharing that has been really cool. 
I mean, yeah. I just, I think it's been great. And that was something I really didn't expect at all. We're very fortunate and we have a little house in a, a rural part of Sonoma County in the wine country where we have tiny little hobby vineyard. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we would go up there on the weekend and when I wasn't working, I would, you know, uh, plant stuff. So, you know, we had to go, we had to go all around. Nobody was delivering plants. So we planted a lot of stuff. So it's been really fun actually to plant and see things grow. We put out bird feeders. I now can identify all sorts of birds. And I love taking photographs of birds. So yeah. now I have a whole group of photographs of all these different birds, including a hawk that had just picked up a mole, you know, it was flying off with the mole and its talons, you know. And and I think that learning those things that we can do too is really important and, yeah. and has been a good part of this. Yeah, it this whole time I think has, you know, it's funny when you said you you feel like you've never been busier. I think so many people can identify with that. I feel like I've never been busier, you know, doing things like this. It's like you have to almost tap tap into what keeps you relevant, what keeps you sane, what makes you feel like you're because I run a live medical event company. And so everything turned upside down with this, but it made me start to realize, you know, I get the picture. I remember you, you, you may or may not remember this. You came to dinner with me and my extended family in Puerto Rico. Yes, I remember. <laughs> and it's like, I got to see you in this way. And when I was thinking about doing something, you know, through COVID, and doing this kind of like inspired inside look, I was thinking not many people get the benefit like I do of seeing behind the podium, you know, what the doctor's like and what they, what makes them crazy and what makes them happy and like all these different things. And so I do feel like one of the things that you're talking about with that more meaningful connection with people that is almost like a, it's almost like collateral from this. It wasn't ever, we sought that out, yeah. but at some point we started to miss connection. And so it was like, we were doing things to make it deeper, making the time together more meaningful. And I love that that is something that you've brought out of it uh, and that your own team has gotten to experience that togetherness more because you, I mean, you spend probably more time with them than you do in your home. Yeah, so. you know, what was funny is that I realized that the staff, you know, we don't sit in the same place, right? The medical assistants sit in a different place. And I realized that, you know, that maybe I wasn't paying enough attention to them and knowing who they were. And, you know, you're yeah. just running around all the time. And uh, it, I thought, you know, this is really a lesson in, yeah. um, in a lot of ways, slowing down and learning who people are and what they do and making them feel so appreciated it's, you know, it's incredibly important and we just have to remember that all the time. Um, so, you know, we're always learning and it's, yeah. it's great to be able to learn from the people we work with, even on how we pay attention to people and interact. Right, right. Well, I think that that's beautiful and I do think that it's very, it's happening in pockets um, all around because people are looking for you know, we're craving it, we're missing it. So I love that it's happening in clinic where, you know, naturally it probably always should have happened, but the pace of things never allowed it uh, to happen before. Well, you mentioned some personal interests. So you've got the uh, little place in Sonoma 
and you love planting and now you've developed this newfound uh, love for bird watching and photographing. <laughs> what other things do you love to do uh, that maybe most people don't know about? You know, I have to say I do work a lot, but um, I love to, I am, I, we have a lap pool up there um, and now, and it's solar heated. And so I've been really loving swimming. One of my patients, unfortunately now long gone, had told me about, you know, I used to hate swimming and you would turn your head and all the water would go near. So uh, she told me about the swim snorkel and that has changed my life. So I love, you know, swimming and I've been uh, doing, you know, with the weather's okay. I do, uh, I swim on the weekend as, as much as I can. Um, and do laps. And so I've liked that a lot. And that's a good thing as you age and you realize that when you ran all that cross-country track, it really probably did damage your knees. So <laughs> I think that's a, that's a, uh, a good thing. And I, um, you know, I've also, I, I've never been a big, you know, like make a fancy meal kind of person, but I like odd cooking. So I grow a lot of hot peppers and I make and I've been making, you know, pickled hot peppers and I grind hot peppers and make hot pepper powder and different kinds. It's really fun. And uh, we've learned um, a lot of different ways of, you know, I, we grew these big squash, which are fascinating, these big round green squash and made curry soup. And I made curry soup because my nurse practitioner's mother, who's Indian, uh, told me about making curry squash soup. And um, and so then, because it was an Indian soup, I brought one to a patient of mine who's also a colleague and uh, who's Indian, and they were so excited beyond belief. So you realize that you, know, you can grow things and you can actually yes. give gifts to people that you just grow um, in the garden. So that's been a lot of fun. And then a little side thing that I like to do is read crummy mysteries. And oh. it's really funny. Uh, so, I mean, I'm part of a, a book club now meeting virtually, and I miss it a fair bit, but um, of women doctors all at, in, uh, you know, around my age and uh, really a lot of serious books, right? But what I really like to do is read these, you know, historical mysteries. Uh -huh. And so I read them on my iPad uh, and that's a lot of fun, you know, since I don't, yeah. I, I often read them in the middle of the night, so. Yeah, um, it's a good escape too. So, wow, yeah, okay. So. Okay, well that's, those are good things that we, uh, we got to know a little about. And you mentioned uh, your husband and kids. So what do they do? Where are they? I know your daughter was in China when all of this broke loose. And so that's a story in its own. But tell us a little bit about family life now. Well, uh, you know, my, my son uh, works in LA in digital media. And uh, the COVID has given him a little time. He was working on a, uh, a uh, company with a partner and, you know, just a lot of financial issues with uh, COVID. And even before, I think that it was a, a really difficult life of uncertainty. I certainly wouldn't be able to tolerate in terms of financial um, uncertainty and, and work coming in. So he's really been rethinking where he wants to work and uh, looking at getting a regular job and focusing a little bit differently. So we're excited for him in that. He works in LA. He's a couple projects he's working on now and they've worked with the Cartoon Network and other things. I mean, it's amazing what you can do with digital animation and how little you make for it. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they can do a lot of work and not make a lot of money. But, um, and uh, my daughter, who's the younger one, uh, they both graduated from UCLA. She had got, she'd worked for a year and gotten this fabulous fellowship in Shanghai and was there. And, you know, Chinese New Year came and there was a little bit of COVID, but not much. And she went to Vietnam with a backpack. And I said to her, being mom, 
Are you sure you only want to bring a backpack? Don't you want to bring a rolly with a little more things? What if you need more things? Anyway, of course, she went with the backpack. And while she was in Vietnam, everything fell apart. And she actually, I got her out with one of the last flights back, but she came through Hong Kong. So she never went to, back to Shanghai to pick up her things. Program was canceled. Everything was done. So we're actually just now working with some people I work with in Shanghai on medical education to try and get her things shipped back because uh, the school left it in there. Then they collected and put it in an office. And then I I asked for these people to bring it to their office, which they very kindly did. So we're now just getting it back. And, you know, my daughter's kept up with her Chinese and she's now decided she wants to go to law school and do uh, education policy. So she's working on that. And my husband is in high tech, has a PhD in material sciences um, and has been working from home, which has been fascinating also. And he's the vintner. He, uh, we have a tiny hobby vineyard. He makes the wine. He made port, although it's not really port because we aren't in Porto uh, last year and uh, is, uh, loves to be in the outdoors. So. Oh, amazing. I love that. Well, I'm so glad that you got her out. My goodness, what a time well, eventually they would have, she would have gotten out, but it was yeah. pretty amazing because it felt very funny. I remember I was at a meeting and, you know, it's kind of like United was just like the flights were dropping off every day. So I kept booking her and then the flights got canceled, you know, so yeah. I think I rebooked her four times. Oh <laughs> so. my goodness. Well, as we get to the close, we've got about seven, eight more minutes, but I wanted to talk with you about, you know, travel. You love traveling. I, I feel like every time I, um, I'm talking with uh, your admin, you know, I'm trying to find dates because you're, you're off teaching here and there and everywhere. Um, what do you miss most? Where do you miss most uh, going? I don't know. I find, you know, sort of beauty and value in, you know, almost everywhere I go. I think, um, you know, I, I really do. I think there's really interesting things to learn about everywhere. And, you know, a lot of the meetings you go to are a day in and out, you know, so you might eat a nice meal or something, but um, in terms of, you know, travel and visiting, that's sort of a different question. But um, I don't know that I really have, you know, there are magic trips where you took a couple of extra days and brought your daughter or son or whatever it is. And I I know you have those experiences too. Uh, But for work-wise, I think that, um, you know, I, I can't say that I have a favorite place or a favorite work trip. I think that uh, the the meetings that you go to like that are just a great opportunity to work with colleagues yeah. and maybe to learn a little bit about another culture, another place, uh, but to learn a lot more. And so for me, those always have been really exciting as long as you, you know, make a balance between being at home and getting your work done and, and yeah. traveling. So yeah. I think um, that's... That's really, otherwise I think I've never been one to have a one favorite anyway. So I appreciate all sorts of different aspects of things. And, and is I, there, go ahead. are there places that you have on a bucket list that you'd like to visit that you haven't yet? There are places I would go back to for holidays. You know, I mean, we uh, used to spend uh, some time in the summer with a colleague and his family in uh, Greece, and we all really loved going out to the islands of Greece. But, you know, there's some places I haven't brought my family that I'd like to, like, you know, traveling around Vietnam. It might be fun to go to Bhutan someday. I don't know that we ever will, uh, but it would be fun. Um, Places like that. I think there's a lot of beautiful places uh, to see in nature, like the Galapagos, et cetera, 
Tierra del Fuego, I haven't been to because, you know, there would never have been a work trip and it takes a long time to go there. Uh, one trip that we did, which was amazing and had nothing to do with work, and you don't even have a, you don't even have a presence as a physician, was going to see the Soyuz launch when my husband's college roommate's wife, Peggy Whitson, um, was uh, the commander of the space shuttle then and uh, the space station for the U.S., and they went up in Soyuz. So we went to Moscow and Kazakhstan as their guests and uh, with several group of different Americans and then the whole French European Space Agency. And that was an amazing experience. So like, I think, you know, that taught me that you should never say no to adventure. You know, we're like, oh no, we can't take two weeks off. And right. then we went and it was incredible. So I wanna say, you know, I just wanna make a comment. I know, cause we're getting towards the end of the hour, but I have to say that I've been really, really impressed by the way you and your company have managed COVID. Um, it's really been amazing to see. And I think that it's important for the viewers to know that too. I mean, they know that the way medical education survives is through getting financial support from pharmaceutical companies. But in this time, it's been really difficult. And what I've seen is that you've reached into you know, your own resources and done programs to benefit physicians, uh, nurse practitioners, practitioners of all kinds and patients um, without having that financial base. And uh, because people are so grateful to you, I think that you know, those of us who've worked with you, you've had an amazing uh, you know, group of people supporting you also through that. But I think it's your energy and support and that of your team that really makes that um, such an incredible resource. And I want to thank you also for that. Oh, thank you for saying that. You know, it's been, it's, it's definitely been a time. It was, it was so uncertain for so long. And we started thinking, you know, we were watching these other companies like uniform companies start making masks or, you know, flower companies start planting different things to kind of serve their communities. And we thought, well, we've got a platform and we love education and we've got people, you know, like you, like these fabulous thought leaders that if we, if we asked for favors at this time, we could still deliver quality information and quality education. And I have to say, you know, doing things like this, the podcast, we did a social media pop-up CME where, you know, there was no funding, but nobody asked for honorarium. And we made the first ever Twitter-based CME. And it was really just, when you think about it, it's just your time. You know, it's like, well, if I have the time and this is my passion, I'm gonna do it. So I appreciate you saying that because I know my team has worked really, um, they've worked without knowing what the future holds. And I think that that's hard, especially, you know, they're all such young, creative, powerful women. Um, it's just been so, it's honored me to see how they've just kind of doubled down and said, we're here, like we're going to do it. So I appreciate you saying that because um, it really means a lot to me and I know uh, to my team as well. Yeah, there's been a couple of other medical education companies that have done this, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been really, really encouraging. And I think, um, I don't know, inspiring to see that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, on that note, I hope I've loved spending this time with you. I know that the listeners have a clearer view of who you are um, behind that white coat. 
I thank you so much for all your contributions. You know, this year's ASCO was exciting on so many levels. Um, your work was exciting. Uh, and I look forward to what's next. You know, how do we keep pushing and we keep creating and we keep um, giving of ourselves in this time and wonderful, beautiful things are coming out of it. So I can't wait to see when we all do get back to being able to be around each other, you know, an SABCS or next year's ASCO or something. Just the first time we can be together, I, I can't wait for all the, you know, that energy, that connection, because like you said earlier, there is something very special about learning from each other when you're in the same room and, you know, just listening on a different level than when you're in front of a screen. So um, I do look forward to seeing uh, everyone again. And I thank you for your time for this. Uh, if there's anything ever that we can do for you, please let us know. And until we see you again, I wish you health and happiness. Um, and I look forward to the time where we do see each other in person. Indeed, me too. And thank you for doing this. And thank you for inviting me to do it also. It was really an honor. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, good night to you. Good night.